Hello and welcome to the Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. Uh, today I'm joined by Simon Aaron and Rob Labrook and fresh from your Motoring Club lecture, uh, Alan McNish. So welcome. Thank you very much. So your title was Combustion to Electric. Yes. So, yeah. so I guess that's quite a personal subject for you. Yeah, it well. is at the moment because uh, I definitely came from the internal combustion yeah. engine <laughs> sort of variety and when I was racing it was all, all the time in that but uh, now you know, progress feels electric uh, as team principal of Audi's Formula E programme. Yeah, so what does that actually mean in terms of team principal of, are you a Neubauer, are you a, you know... Oh, it sort of means I've Christian got to Horner. try and corral all these guys <laughs> to make sure they go in the right direction, dealing with drivers and the likes. But uh, it's, a, it's a funny one because when I was racing, I vowed that I would never, ever run a team. And clearly I didn't fall, you know, follow that particular point by doing it. But, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And in its first year, there was a lot of things that were new, but there was a lot of things actually that are exactly the same as being a driver. Uh, where you just have to maybe look at it in a slightly different way, but uh, the processes and everything else are exactly the same. I was going to say, um, I mean, I first met you when you were a pup doing the British Formula 3 Championship a million years ago. Can, I mean, you, at, at, that stage, at that stage, you were, you know, you were a pain in the butt racing driver causing problems for a team manager. Now, now the, you know, the boot's on the other foot. I mean, how are you actually, how are you actually finding, finding that? That I mean, you've got two more mature drivers with the Audi team, I, I know, but... Um. Yeah, they're mature, but at the end of the day, drivers are driven by emotion. Let's cut to the chase. And they, every driver wants to win for themselves. And so you've got to sort of counterbalance that. And when I was racing, I wanted to win for me. I had two teammates when I was in sports cars, uh, and together we wanted to win. But ultimately, it was only to win the sister car in the garage. If they finished a fine second, we were very, very happy. But in reality, we weren't really too bothered about where they finished. Dr. Ulrich, our boss, he cared about where both cars finished. And uh, so that's really the difference. As a driver, you look through one visor. But as a team principal, you look through both the visors. And you sometimes have to balance that off. I think the thing that probably helps me is that I've been in pretty much every situation over 32 years of being a driver that Daniel or Lucas could ever get into. And uh, we've had a few very frank discussions. We've had a few sort of calming of the moments, but we've had a, a few very, very good celebrations as well. And, you know, I've been in that as a driver now, seeing it as a team principal, but uh, definitely, you know, it's a few hot potatoes at times. <laughs> and do you get the same buzz out of winning a race as a team principal that you used to win when you did it as a driver or not? I didn't think so until Mexico. Uh, when Daniel won his first race, and that was our first official race win as a team. And uh, going up onto the podium there, I did get a massive buzz. And uh, it was exactly the same as, as a driver. And I, was, I suppose they say, you know, as a father, you live through your son in a way, and in a, in a respect, I'm sort of living through it, through them. But uh, yes, I did get a massive buzz out of it. Um, slightly different because you're obviously there in front for the team as opposed to necessarily an individual aspect to it, but uh, it means a heck of a lot. Potentially a slightly loaded question, um, but do you think that drivers are better equipped to, be, uh, to become a team manager? Because you've no, seen both sides of the coin. I don't think it's an easy transition. I think it depends on the team. I think it depends on the backup behind it, the structure, the people and everything else. But I would say it's like football players. Good football players don't automatically make good managers. 
Some make excellent managers and some don't. And I think, you know, we're just exactly a reflection of that. Uh, for me, I had some very good teachers in my career. You mentioned 1989, Dick Bennett. And Dick was extremely good with drivers. I then, you know, had Jackie Stewart, who was extremely good in all of the other ways, how you deal with the media, how you deal with the sponsors, all of these things. And uh, then latterly, Dr. Ulrich at Audi, and who was extremely good, I would have said, at dealing also with the board members as well as everything else and, and the way that all of this, the ecosystem works. And so I've had some very good people to learn off through the years. Uh, but I wouldn't say uh, it's easy, and I also wouldn't say that uh, I'm anywhere near a finished product, that's for sure. You know, there's every day you're learning something new. Again, because, you know, I had 32 years of looking at it one way, which was me, me, me. Do you occasionally do that parent thing where you see yourself giving a driver talk and you think, oh my God, I sound exactly like Wolfgang sounded with Le Mans? I don't know, I'll have to ask him actually. <laughs> so were you instantly sold on Formula E? No. No, no, not at all. What kind of... Well, I, if I go back when I, I was in my last year of racing, I knew I was going to retire, but I hadn't told anybody. And uh, so, you know, in fact, Katie, who's sitting at the other end of the table, called me uh, one day and said, by the way, there's an opportunity with Foreign Lee. Uh, are you interested? And I said no, because I knew in my head I was going to stop but at the same time it just was the wrong time you know I, I would too set my ways for that sort of thing and I went to the first race with my children who were I say first race sorry apologies first season it was in Monaco and they would be maybe nine and six at the time and I went and sat in the stands at the swimming pool complex just out between tobacco and swimming pool to see exactly what it was like from the fans perspective because I knew what it would be like if you go into a paddock, but from the fan side of things. And I have to be honest with you, I wasn't sold. And then I went to Berlin in season two, and uh, I drove the car there and was doing the commentary because Dario, who does the, the commentary alongside Jack Nichols, Dario was actually at the Indy 500. And I saw a different side of it there, and then I saw how it had developed between season one and season two. And then through season three, started to sort of get a little bit more involved because Audi were considering looking at it. And I had been given the sort of task to understand how we could actually integrate it if we wanted to go down that route. And uh, then I saw the development again. So it certainly wasn't initial sale and I wasn't initially that impressed. But the way that they have adapted and the way that they've learned has been very, very quick. And I think the thing that I quite like about it is the agility of it. They try things and if it works, they try it again. And if it doesn't work, they don't cry about it, they just try something else. And I do like that aspect to it because it's trying to find exactly what works for Formula E. And I think that's what motorsport championships have got to do now is to find exactly what works for them and to be in their area, whether that be Formula One, whether it be a World Endurance Championship, whether it be Formula E or even national championships. You know, they've got to just be clear on what their goal actually is. Oh, so I was gonna say, we're coming into season five now for Formula E and it's the first year in which the cars are going to have to do a full race distance yes. on without a mid-race chassis change, yep. battery change. Um, so clearly massive progress has already been made in a relatively short period of time. I kind of liken it in my head to, I mean the first mobile phones we all had that were... You know, I know kind of were yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, you remember them. Yeah, well, you won't remember them, do you? <laughs> no, no, you yeah. just remember these PDAs. You don't remember four second battery life, do you? No, and all of that sort of thing. But I mean, 
competition in that domain brought, I mean, within four or five years, we had phones that were this big and the batteries lasted a week and so on and so forth. I mean, how long do you think it's going to be before, thanks to the comp competitive element in Formula E, we have power powertrains that are actually generally small, compact and incredibly durable? Well, in that respect, um, it's down to the regulations and then the appetite of people to get involved in it. So that was one of the major discussions about going into the Generation 2 car, so the Season 5 car, and also the Generation 3 car, the next one um, that will come along, was what do we want to open out in terms of the regulations? It's quite clear that there wasn't a big appetite for chassis development, because is it relevant to electric cars, road cars? Not really. Aerodynamic, then aerodynamic efficiency is irrelevant, because if you've got a draggy car, then you use energy to push it down the straight. So efficiency, but not downforce, because we didn't want to get into a situation where, and I say we, the collective teams and manufacturers we, um, the, the, that you basically were aerodynamically led as opposed to drivetrain and electric motor led. And so it brought it back to this particular point and the, the piece in between the battery, then purely because of cost and also expertise, then we decided that was better to be a white box, but a common battery for everybody. I say white box as an unbranded, but a common battery for everybody. And uh, that is the situation at the moment. What happens further down the line, I think that could open up, but the championships, is, you know, it's four years old. It's not ready for that sort of explosion at the moment. And so therefore our focus is very much onto the electric drivetrain and there, even year to year with software development, forget hardware, software development, we're gaining a lot. And we're able to, you know, and the one I brought up at the lecture was actually Punta del Este, where with more power available, with the same energy, they were able to go six laps longer in comparison to season one. And so they're going faster with more power and uh, they're, you know, with the same amount of energy and that's mainly on software development. So therefore there's a, there's a lot of gains to be made here. And it's a little bit like, in my view, what it was at the beginning of our diesel program, where we were just untapping the potential of it. And it was only when you got further down, you opened up the doors and it was like Pandora's box in a way. And uh, I think it's going to go in the same direction. But we have to keep a control over the costs because, as I said, it's still quite young. With the old car, there was a lot of convergence for technology reaching to this point. Does yep. this now open a new door and everyone's going to yes. be blank canvas? It will be because we've got also the opening up of some technology like brake by wire, as an example. And uh, as well, I think when you go back and being very honest about it, season one, season two were predominantly teams and independent teams. And season four, five, six, seven is going to be predominantly manufacturers with teams running them. And so therefore there's a different level of expertise and potential that's in that. And so I think that you will see a lot of uh, things opening up in terms of where the performance is gained. It may not necessarily be on particular parts on the car, but uh, it will be in terms of, like I say, the software development, the understanding and how we can actually get more out of it. I guess that fluidity of the changes and the plan changes, teams know that they mm -hmm. can switch from this car to this car has opened up a more competitive end of this period. So you've got more independent teams have more of a chance, whereas yep. where, when Nissan or Renault are focused on the future, so everyone kind of wins in a way. Yeah, you've got, I would say that reduces later on though, yep. honestly. Uh, there was definitely a, 
a big sea change over season three to season four. Now, clearly, from our point of view, we put a lot of effort into season three. Uh, sorry, season four, when we took over. Uh, you mentioned Renault there. They didn't do very much development for season four because they focused more on season five. Now, for us, we understood where we wanted to go and what we needed to do. And we're coming into the market, so we had to come in, you know, a bit of a bang in that respect. Uh, th but I think that the more it becomes a top-line championship, the more that you will see uh, the people being able to race and develop at the same time. And that's fundamentally the way that it'll go. You talk about the current maintenance of cost controls thanks to a common agreement between all the manufacturers, but history tells us, yes. you looked at the British Touring Car Championship in the mid-90s, for example, when they were spending what, eight, 10 million pounds and there were nine, 10 manufacturers for a while, then gradually the bubble bursts because they can't all win and they're spending lots of money not to win. I mean, do you think that the current equilibrium can be maintained in Formula E? It's gonna be very difficult because the more competition that comes in, the more the status of the championship increases, the more money involved, the more manufacturers, board member, return on investment, everything else becomes more difficult. But I've never been involved in a championship in all my time where we sit round the table and discuss common problems without necessarily having our own complete agendas under the table and playing the cards. I've never been involved in it like this, so therefore I think we've got a very good starting point to be able to develop. It will become more difficult, there will be road bumps, no questions about it. But, uh, you know, there's two sides to cost control. That is, obviously, the controlling costs, but there's then the return on investment. It's when the costs become higher than the return on investment, then you've got a problem. If the return on investment from the television, from the media, from the fans at the track, ultimately is increasing in line, then you're okay to a much greater degree. It's when that doesn't increase and the costs increase quicker than it. Because at the end of the day, it's a sport. It is an element of entertainment, it's an element of development, but ultimately, you know, it is a business. And so therefore, we're all under that sort of pressure. It doesn't matter whether it's in the media, whether it's in you know, the manufacturers or racing team, we're all under that sort of pressure and it's got to actually tally up at the end of the year. I heard you saying earlier that you got an Audi e-tron on order. Yes. So do, does, does that justify Audi's investment or do you need to sell a few more? <laughs> I'm behind Prince Albert apparently <laughs> on the list. Um, yeah, it, look, you remember our racing programmes through the years. You know, the Audi R8 was on the racetrack at Le Mans and then became a road car. Uh, the TDI development through the diesel programme, that also opened up a lot of uh, developments, the laser lights, you know, just as some of the examples. And so therefore, motorsport very much, in, from Audi's perspective, sits underneath technical development. It doesn't sit under market, it sits directly under technical development. And uh, so from that point of view, it does have to have its relevance. But going forward, you know, we've been with e-tron since 2012 at Le Mans with the first hybrid. And now, obviously, with uh, Formula E as a full BEV car. And uh, they've brought out e-tron. But by the time we get to 2025, they're looking at 33% of all cars sold will have electrification. Now, that's a huge number if you think of the number of cars worldwide they sell, or even in the UK with just over 150,000 cars. And so therefore there is, a, there is a definitely a big push towards that. But there is also on the other side of it, you know, that means that uh, there's still a lot of other 
types of cars that are being sold as well. So it's not just the electric, but uh, that is going to be a big, big factor in the future. Speaking but you can buy one. I can do you a deal. <laughs> we'll talk later. Yeah, no, no problem at all. I've got the order forms here. <laughs> Will I be behind Prince Albert as well? Uh, you'll be well behind. <laughs> Speaking of technical development, one of the new things this year you hit on earlier is the um, introduction of brake-by-wire. Yes. Um, how much of a game-changer do you think that's going to be? Because before we've seen drivers managing regen from the brake-by-wires. Yeah, it, look, there's two things you could look at. It. One is that actually do we want the driver doing this or do we want to push the development forward? You know, I don't think I've used a mechanical brake balance in a racing car since 2008. So do we really want to go back in what is possible? And the second thing is that you can regenerate a lot more energy with brake by wire. Mm. And so when we're talking about trying to actually develop energy use and to regenerate more, then it's, it's a part of it. And the e-tron was the first road car, but it's not gonna be the last road car with brake by wire systems on it. They're all going to go in that direction. So to me, it's a part of that relevance between the two. And it has got a, it's got a good purpose. What we need to do is have a very delicate balance between what is road relevant and what still keeps the sport alive. And uh, that's one of the things I think going forward to the next generation of cars that we've just got to keep in mind a little bit. Do you feel it's going to change the driving experience a lot or racing experience yeah drive racing uh, experience. yeah the, you know it will because uh, it will push it that little bit deeper into the braking area however saying that you don't uh, what we saw in valencia was that there was still a lot and what we've seen in our own private testing as well there's st still a high chance of lockups and mistakes and things like that because ultimately the tire grip there's no downforce mm. and you're regenerating a lot with a l with very limited grip availability to to fix it if you like yeah. um, so therefore i don't think it's going to be a massive game changer you know that it makes life so much easier i still think it's going to be very very difficult but we can put more energy back into the battery which we can use again and do you think the, uh, the switch to single car races is going to help win over those sceptics that still kind of dismiss Formula E for the, the two chassis? Well, I was one of those sceptics. <laughs> it's got you already. <laughs> 100%. And what I saw, though, was that people who weren't motor racing fans, but just general passing casual fans, actually liked it because it was something different. And I thought it was completely wrong but they liked it because it was something different. What I think it will do is it'll, it'll prove, yes, like the mobile phone battery, we are making big steps forward. Uh, it will then bring in the next point of, well, how do we replace that mid-race mid sort of entertainment, excitement, option to change? And so there's been some discussions, there's obviously this attack mode, where you go from 200 kilowatts to 225 kilowatts of power for a period of time, and that time is only defined by the FIA just before the race. So it's not a predetermined something that we can calculate and try and work out, you know, deliver it, and, you know, right, okay, off you go and you try it. And so that can be two times four minutes, one times eight minutes, it could be eight times one minute, for example. And so therefore, it, it's a bit of a, a roll of the dice that we've got as a team but also the driver has, and that can mix things up a little bit all the way through the race. And my view on this is it's better to look at the whole race as opposed to just maybe two minutes in the middle. Yeah. And so therefore work on how we're going to make the whole race 
uh, a good race. Because ultimately, we still want the same person, as in the best person over the race or over the season, to actually win. But uh, we want to make it quite tough for them and entertaining for the rest of us. You, you said that initially you were sceptical about the swapping cars mid-race. Why did you think that was silly when well, you getting out after two hours and plugging Tom Christensen in wasn't silly? Well, I could have done three hours. <laughs> <laughs> because with all the comments that came back from a the studies in battery electric vehicles, the biggest question mark and why people wouldn't adopt was range anxiety. So when you are showing people that you don't have the range, then it is against everything that you're trying to talk about. And so it was really fundamentally on that, that it's just talking about the wrong thing. But that wrong thing actually became a positive talking point, which was then a it was a lesson to me again that just because we've done it this way, in the past doesn't mean to say it's the right way. Sometimes that it does offer, offer up new opportunities. And uh, you've just got to be aware of those new opportunities and maybe be open-minded to them. And I was quite close-minded, if I'm very honest with you. And I guess, I guess at the same time, the fact that after four seasons, they're now switching to a, it's an, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a positive talking point. Yes, it is. You and can, it helps cancel range anxiety a little bit. Yeah, you can sort of stand up and say, right, we've, well, you can say what we've developed and how we've moved forward in the seasons with the same amount of energy. Now, the best way for me to describe energy is just like a fuel tank and you've got it full and you can go further. Uh, you know, a battery's just got an amount of energy in it. And so we've been able to talk about that, but, you know, there is a, a positive, definitive statement. If you think of uh, Andre Lotterer, was quite critical of the championship. Yeah. And now he's obviously embedded in it. Have you spoken to him and yeah, yeah, since no, he no, joined no. in? What's, of course. what's his kind of, of course. Him well and Because uh, Andre was critical of it. Uh, and both of us were getting it in the ear from Lucas de Grassi, <laughs> who was there from the start. And Lucas was telling us all about it. <laughs> and uh, it was quite funny with Andre because Clearly, he got an opportunity to drive for Tichita, and I'm not 100% sure he was totally enamoured about it, and he drove the car, and it was all difficult, and he had a shock in Hong Kong. Yeah. His first race, I actually felt for him, and uh, I was thinking, oh, this might be tough. But then, once he got into it, and by, I think, the third or fourth race, Santiago, you know, he was on the podium, and since then, he's been a pain in the backside, to be honest. And uh, he's, got, he's got round it and understood it and realised that it's different. It's not better or worse, it's different. And you've got to adapt to it and you've got to come at it with a, a, an open mind on how you're going to attack the drive and the racing and everything else. But what I've noticed is that every driver that gets out enjoys it. They enjoy the racing and the challenge of it. It's a different challenge. You know, it's not the extreme challenge with the downforce and, you know, power that they had in the LMP1 car. But it is a different challenge, but it's a challenge nonetheless. You look at Sebastian Buemi, mm. who is very analytical, and he's, I know people that work with him, he sometimes says things that they're about to say in terms of. Yeah, he's read, the, he's read the sheets <laughs> in advance. Trust me, he's been looking over the shoulder. He, I wouldn't have sat next to him at school exams, that's for sure. <laughs> but in the car, he's sort of, he's as aware of what's going on. And same with Lucas Degrassi. Is that going to get worse? Is that going to play into their hands yes. better next year? I think it plays into the hands anyway, because the thing is, you've got limited data. You know, you've got limited understanding of what anybody else is doing. 
And so what you're doing is effectively getting into the race. You're trying to help them and guide them a little bit, but you can't do very much. And so it's down to the driver and the drivers, in my view, that have got uh, the ability to race and have the brain capacity to do all of the strategy side of things with regard to the regeneration, with regard to, in terms of the car swaps, where they were with their energy management and how they could do things, then those were the guys that would win on a more consistent basis. And it's not a surprise to me that you had Sebastian and Lucas as two drivers at the end fighting out the championships over uh, several years because, you know, they both stand out. Now, thankfully, on our side, Daniel Apt has stepped up in season four to be one of those consistent contenders. And uh, it's good to see that uh, the development from his perspective, um, but at the same time, it just adds another person into that mix. And then you've got Jev in there and then you've got Andre Lotterer in there. And now we've got Felipe Massa coming in season five. You know, you've got a lot of good drivers with different backgrounds and also I think different capabilities and different personalities that are all going to be, I would say, giving it one big one when we come to the first race. But I guess people like Lotterer and Degrassi, their experience of when the hybrids kicked in into Wimwek, you were, you were driving style, everything changed and you had a different mindset almost. Yeah, to go well, Sebastian, Lucas wasn't there right at the beginning of that. Sebastian um, but, uh, was, been in yeah, so, yeah, Andre was, that's for sure. Uh, yes. However, you had, so there's an understanding of how the systems work and how you roughly drive them. But in reality, when you've got more downforce than a Formula One car, more tire grip than a Formula One car, and more power than a Formula One car, an LMP is slightly different. Especially then when you relate it back to what a Formula E car is. But uh, I, there's no question about it, the experience they had helped them. How do you think Albon, if he does stick with Formula E, how will he get on, do you think? The first few races I've got a phone helmet and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm interested because you, I, I actually think he's very good. And, you know, looking at his background, how he's had to work for what he's got, it's not silver spoon in that respect. You know, it's been a little difficult road for the boy. But uh, I think he's, he's got some talent. But I'm interested because he's coming through it from a, a junior single-seater perspective. And then you've got Felipe, who's coming in it from a Formula One yeah. perspective. How they both get on, because they're two complete different ends of the spectrum. Um, and they're both getting into something that is very different to what they've done before. But I would say that Albon is probably ready for it. Um, and you'll see him get stuck into things uh, maybe sometimes places you shouldn't go, but you'll see him getting stuck in there. Uh, whereas I think Felipe will probably use his experience a wee bit more at the beginning. We all, we all grew well, grew up in an age when we had eight cylinder, 10 cylinder, 12 cylinder, in my case, H16 cylinder engines. Um, do you think there is still a future for internal combustion racing yes. in the long term? Yes. Why? Because there's two points to this. One is that uh, if I, we're of an era, you know, these guys are of a different era, but we're of an era. And so we remember all those feelings and sensations and love of different cars uh, of that era. And then we Apart get- from the Lola T9150. Well, you tell me one person that has a low yeah, love okay. of that particular car. Sorry, I, the T90. I, I, that was that was good. That was good car. Yeah, the T91 I was. Sorry, uh, I apologise. Yeah, that, that was like an ingrowing nail. Yeah. 
Uh, it. I've lost my thread here. No, 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 we're going, coming back to that here. That's right. Because we're of an era, so we want to maybe hark back to at one point. If we've got the capability to do that, to buy an old car and to race it, so from a historic point of view or to just drive it, I think it's there. But also, if you look at it today, and I mentioned 33% from an Audi perspective of you know, electrification by 2025, that means that there's 66% of something else. And so therefore it will be a long time, I would say, before you get to a point of parity of 50-50, never mind taking over. So I think from both road car, there is definitely a future for other, other fuel sources. And I think on racing as well, you know, look at it from our point of view, we've got the DTM program and we've got all of our customer racing programs and we have Formula E. It's not that we've just left everything and only with Formula E and electric, we actually do have a coverage over other things because we believe that's a reflection of what the marketplace is going to be as well. In that 66%, um, there's probably going to be hydrogen, which brings us quite conveniently be, yep. into WEC. Yep. Um, Audi's been on record to say that it won't touch the hypercar regulations because it doesn't have hypercar. Does that mean it's waiting for 2024 and the, hy and the hydrogen? No, I read that article that was in uh, the French newspaper. Yeah. And uh, at the moment, you know, the future that we're looking at is, as I said, customer racing programs, DTM and Formula E, and uh, there's not a, a vision forward. They, all manufacturers do sit on different panels to discuss what the regulations are going to be, partly because they want to see how things are evolving, but also the other point is that, uh, you know, it's all part of the ecosystem. And so whether those be FIA panels, which mostly they are, or alternatively in individual situations. But it's not a surprise uh, if you hear at some point in the future uh, someone representing, either from the group or, uh, or individually in that. That happens all the time. But it's not on our agenda right now. Do you think um, the hypercar regulations, which is before then, are a good call, a bad call? I think they're, a good, they they're rewinding back to... Uh, the rewinding back to basically when I started sports cars, to the GT1 era. And that blossomed up things because we're talking about, you know, cars that you aspire to. You know, those were cars you aspire to. Those are the cars that are on kids' walls and they grow up and looking at them and they want something. It's got to drive an emotion. I had as a pencil case. Then Did I'm, you? Yep, the GT1. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 28 years I old. I think it was your one as well, right? It was your winner. Yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You make me feel young. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, they, you do aspire to, to that type of thing. And so therefore, I do think it is a good way to go. Trying to bring the budgets back, trying to bring, you know, the car inspirations back and also something that you can relate to. Something that actually looks like a particular brand across the board, I think is a very positive step. Uh, what is happening at the moment is that uh, also then they're obviously making plans for the next generation beyond it. And that's the, the interesting point for me because I like the concept of it, I really do. And I like the concept of the fact that also at the same time they're looking to vary race lengths as well. They're going to a four hour you know, length of race and a six and then you've got uh, the 12 hours, the 10. So you've got all these different options that are coming up because at the end of the day, it's not all about uniformity, it's about changing environments. And you'll get different cars that are more competitive over four to a 24 hour race for obvious reasons. But you also get the less chance if someone makes a mistake to be able to recover 
even if they have a performance advantage. So for me, all of these changes are quite good. And then you've got obviously the new regulations and then the next ones beyond them. And right now, who obviously Toyota are winning every race. Mm. Who is really winning? Is anyone winning? Because you've got the championship is fighting headlines about the racing yeah. and the EOT and you've got Toyota who are Well, I go to all the it. races yeah. and I watch all the races and I can tell you that Toyota are the dominant factor, yeah. but they were always going to be. Let's be frank about it. The car was dominant, you know, last year. So why is it going to be any less dominant? And you've got an organisation that was built to fight factories from Porsche and from Audi and now it's fighting people who are very, very capable, I've got to say, but they've got much less resources. So it's not a surprise they're, they're better, even if they're the same speed over one lap, but be able to maximise the whole race or the whole season. It's always going to be the case. And I don't think you can ever perfectly match a privateer programme to a factory programme. You just, I don't think you can. And so I think we've got to be just a little bit honest about that. LMP2, though, Blinding racing. GTE Pro, fantastic stuff. Look at those races. Those are absolutely nip and tuck. All the way through, every single one, you sort of look at it and think, ah, this race, it could be going in that direction, and then it swings back. Brilliant racing all the way through. And GTE Am as well has had some real stonkers. So from my perspective, that unfortunately, the LMP1 Toyota dominance and the fact that the privateers can't achieve the same sort of level of performance has overshadowed some superb racing underneath. And the superb racing is based around about predominantly GTE Pro. Yeah. And GTE Pro is predominantly what the new regulations are kind of set on. Um, so therefore, I think the future is quite good. It's just unfortunate that right now we've got one dominant force because they're bigger than anybody else. But we really can't be surprised. Well, they've said that they would st they'll stick around for next year. Mm -hmm. If you were them, would you take a year out and leave? Yeah, the but if you take there? a year out, you know it's quite easy in conceptual terms to take a year out. But your team starts to erode away. If somebody goes over here, you know they, it loses that race match fit, and so it's always a risk. Sometimes it's actually better to stay in the game, and uh, you know just don't get rusty. You also mentioned GTE. Is there a case that you could make that? the media, we focus on the wrong thing in GTE, in that we, there are too many headlines go towards a team boss saying we've been hamstrung by BOP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is, and I've got to be honest, everybody's got a part to play with that, because when I started off there wasn't a thing called BOP. The bop you had was a bop in the nose, <laughs> and that was it. And it, in fact, you remember Ralph Kellner's? Yes. Ralph and I were sitting, he was my first teammate, or one of my first teammates. Ralph and I were sitting at Le Mans two, three years ago, and he said, when did this BOP come in? Because now everybody complains about BOP. Before, you used to know who was quick and who wasn't, and the ones that weren't quick went home and just worked, or didn't come, or went to a different category, if they couldn't. And now you've got everybody kind of complaining about and sandbagging, and I hate all of that. And then the drivers talk about it, and then the media report on it, and then it builds itself up into this big story, when in reality, you know, if you look at the racing, then it's fantastic racing. And there is no way that uh, everybody has got a bad turn all the time. And I heard one driver complaining bitterly to a pit reporter as if it was their fault, as if they had done the BOP, <laughs> and they were getting so animated. And 
that driver forgot that he won two races earlier in the season because he had BOP. And so therefore it's, it's very easy to get caught up in the emotion, but I think we've got to be careful not to talk about that as the sole principle of it, because the, you know, the fact is the racing is super, and over the course of a year, I think it does balance out the mo most of the time. Can we just shift on to something else? You were a very successful British racing driver, world champion in the WEC, many other gongs. Lewis Hamilton, discuss. I think Lewis Hamilton has proven last year and this year how good he is. And I think he's getting better. I think he was always extremely talented. I remember him at uh, the Autosport show at the NEC. Oh, in the car race. In the car I, race. I was, I was in yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, yeah. yeah, he overtook you, I think, yeah, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah. I think that's why Ron <laughs> picked him and not you, to yeah, be honest, there's, there's Simon. There's Ron had, had both your CVs there. He was also about 40 it. kilos lighter than me, which yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Age-old excuse, isn't it? Yeah. That wasn't Lewis's fault, by the way. No, no, so no, you know. No, no. But, uh, you know, from there, it was clear he could race. From the point he got into Formula One and what he did in his first season, it's clear he had speed and talent and everything else. It was also clear that there were times when it wasn't running for him and, and he struggled to manage all of that. But uh, what I see in the last couple of years is he's completely happy in his own skin. He's driving superbly well, doesn't make mistakes very often. And when really mentally it gets down to the crunch point, he pulls it out the bag. And if, he w you know, if you had a, an array of drivers that you'd want on your list, for me, he would be a solid straight in. And without question, not because of the five titles or the victories he's had this year, but for the consistency of deliverance of a performance that he's had. And you know, I've, I don't sit in the debriefs, but I understand that he's got a pretty strong work ethic as well, uh, much more than maybe you know, the, the persona gives in terms of his flying around jet set lifestyle. But if you've got that skill level and you've got that work ethic and you've got that mental resilience, you win championships. And five, I don't think is the limit. I think he'll have more than that. What do you make of the um, situation in Formula One with all these constant engine penalties? I mean, Le Mans, Audi managed to make a, a hybrid engine do a complete Formula One season without falling apart. I mean, there are some Formula One teams that can't do three or four corners without the thing falling apart. I mean, yeah. do, 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 I mean how, do you think it does reflect badly on that? I mean, it's very confusing for the outside world. The driver who qualifies ninth is actually starting 25th or whatever, because, yeah. I mean, do you think there's a solution to that? Get rid of it. Could be a solution. Well, hybrid engines or no, the, the, penalties. the penalties. I don't think it's hybrid engines. It's the penalties. Uh, you know, the few things that I would like to get rid of, one of them, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, blue flag rule. Yeah, absolutely. Get rid of that. If the driver comes to lap him and he cannot overtake, and I know there's the one and a half seconds per lap to be able to overtake and everything else, but it actually creates a different skill set. And overtaking is a skill, and it's a, a skill of a driver. So for me, get rid of that blue flag rule, and whoever comes up behind someone else to overtake for position or alternatively to lap, get on with it. Now, the other guy can't obviously drive you off the road, but that's one. In terms of the penalties, I look at it from the commentary point of view, having done that, it is very difficult to explain. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to calculate until, unless you've been a, a nuclear physicist, you know, how many penalties McLaren got a couple of years ago. 
You know, they were starting in different circuits, never mind, you know, on the grid. And that is a bad message. So I think we have to come back at some points and work out, actually, there is the honesty of the sport. And then there's the message we're trying to put across and balance those two out. And to me, the message we were putting across wasn't good because people, A, didn't understand it, didn't like it, or didn't care. And all of them were a switch off to the sport that we wanted to promote. And so, yes, I would come back on the penalty side of things and look at it a little bit differently. I'm not sure I know the answer, uh, but there's got to be a little bit of a different view. Going back to Lewis Hamilton, do you think um, he could beat Schumacher, maybe get eight, and then just walk away from the sports? Or do you think he'll end up oh, turning to sports cars? No, I think... He'd be done. I, I think uh, we can't predict that very easily. Would you have predicted Nico was going to walk away? No. So I, I, didn't, I didn't predict you were going to walk away at the age of 43. That, that took me by surprise. Did it? Yeah. Good. That's why I did it. <laughs> <laughs> you were the only reason. Sitting there, right, where's Aaron? Um, he won't predict this one. Predicted many things in my career, but this one, I've got him. Uh, I think he's got a new energy. You've got to have a goal, and he's got a new goal. And that's something that now could be attainable. When you've got three and you look at eight, it's a long way away. When you've got five and you look at seven, you know, that, that's attainable. And so I'm sure that that will re-energise him a little bit. What he does from there, who knows? Because I know if when I was 40 or 43, my mind changed quite dramatically from, you know, my viewpoint, what I wanted to do. And uh, so in that respect, I don't think it's easy to predict. So it's, it's, it's entirely down to the person. I don't necessarily see Lewis coming doing something else though, in motorsport. I could see him personally, like Eddie Irvine, disappearing off and never hearing or seeing him in a paddock again. And I think he's more that personality than someone that would actually stay in the sport, but I may be entirely wrong. What did you think of uh, Nick? I mean, I thought Nico's decision was fantastic. Yeah. It was very refreshing. Yes. Just said, right, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. Done. Yep. Walk I, off. And I, I had a discussion with somebody and <clears throat> tried to bring it back to them in a different way. If you're in a standard life, standard job, and you go through school and you go through university, and then you have a sort of 20 year career in a high achieving job where second is not an option, only winning is the option, then you basically get to what, 50 years old? And it's not inconceivable that, you know, leaders in industries retire at 50 or step back. But in reality, from a racing driver's point of view, it just happens to be that everything starts so much younger and goes through, but the actual workload is roughly the same. And the biggest single difference that for me was a big impact was the amount of nights you spend in hotels. So you spend over two thirds of your year in a hotel or traveling, and that is a big drain on energy. And uh, so that's a point as well that I don't think it's very easy to understand what that is like to your sort of life. And if you've re reached your goals, why not? You know, it's his decision, it's his career, it's his life, it's no one else's. And he did something that I think a lot of people didn't think he would be able to do. And then he walked away. It's better to walk away as a world champion and walk away having finished fifth. Yeah, and then and, and Lewis, couldn't get, <laughs> Lewis couldn't get back at him either. So, yeah, we know where it is. He had the last word. <laughs> is it arguable that Fernando Alonso has hung around Formula One too long in, in that kind of mindset? 
um, because obviously we see him now off chasing this, this triple crown, unofficial triple crown. Depends what ticks your box, really. You know, you look at Emanuele Piro, you know, a teammate of mine. Emanuele just loved driving, still loves driving. He'd drive a shopping cart and he'd drive it really well. You know, and that's something that some drivers just have that as their base. Some it's racing, the competition, the, the, the sort of focus in life. Some it's purely winning. And so I think that's individual. In terms of Fernando, it's still delivering. So a very hard thing is when you're still delivering on track to be able to change your goal set. And, but he has changed his goal set because he's now doing other things. And that is really good to see because that's opened up the doors. You know, when I started, you had to focus on your one objective and do nothing else. And then it's now opened up where you can actually try different things. A lot of drivers have two categories they race in, not necessarily even the same type of category. But uh, that, I think, is a positive thing as well, that adaptability. How impressed were you with Alonso's Le Mans debut as, as someone that's been there and won it multiple times? I was more impressed with his Le Mans than necessarily Spa. Okay. And uh, I think, you know, it, Le Mans was overshadowed a little bit by the fact that it was him, his car that won and everybody else happened to be in it, helping him from a media <laughs> perspective. You know, they were just supporting him every now and then. But uh, his drive through the night was very competitive. He was very, very competitive. In Spa, uh, Conway caught up in the back of him in the last stints and then basically held fire. And I thought, okay, yep. But then he really knuckled down and by the time he got to Le Mans, he was on it. And so it wasn't just Fernando, but uh, the whole team delivered, but uh, he was definitely part of it. He wasn't, as a, he wasn't the weak link in the chain. And that was quite impressive, but was it a surprise? He can overtake, he can drive, he's got capacity in his brain to do things and he's physically fit. So it's not a surprise he can adapt. Absolutely. One of the divisive points as well, um, what, what were your feelings on the, the WEC uh, calendar change? almost to, for the sake of Alonso to get him at Toyota's home race because it ended up, it, it divided a lot of people on social media, it, including high profile drivers. That yep. No, 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 it did. Weren't best My chuffed. view is very simple. You've got a major manufacturer that's invested a lot in the sport. You've got uh, a driver that is very well renowned. You've got a circuit that is owned by the major manufacturer, investing a lot in the sport. <laughs> and a country that also has been a big supporter of sports car racing for a long, long period of time. So all of those suggest you should try to adapt to fit for that. Unfortunately, it was Petit Le Mans, and that was the hit. And uh, I know the drivers complained about it, and I know the drivers why they complained about it, but I think there's a reality of, you know, for the good of the overall sport as opposed to that one particular race, sometimes they had to take a hard decision. And as much as it's a hard decision, I actually think it was the right decision. I also think it's the right decision that when they can uh, come back from that, as they've done for the next year, then they do it as well, because there'll be no clash for the next season. But, uh, you know, there's times when you've got to try and look for the bigger picture. And right now, I think that was the bigger picture. Not easy being a championship manager. <laughs> No, it, it certainly isn't. It, there's no question. But it's a case of, right, you sometimes do have to look on a global view as opposed to your one individual race. When you're a promoter and when you're running a championship, when you're a team or a driver, you only look for that one point, and that's, that's fact.
Let's get back to your own career. You came into Formula Ford, did a... Do you remember Formula Ford? <laughs> I do, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm older than I look. Um, <laughs> caught the attention by, as a junior, winning a senior race at Snetterton and so on and so forth. Got picked up by a tobacco company and brought through the ranks. But, I mean, all the tobacco money and stuff has gone nowadays. Yeah. Things have got a little more expensive. Do you think that in this day and age, Alan McNish, age 17, coming into no. single-seater racing would have, would have made it? Nope. I would have been selling cars in southwest of Scotland. Very sure. Doing deals on BMWs? Uh, deal on anything. <laughs> I'll sell you anything, sir. If you want a tractor, we've got tractors. No, the, I think it's now much, much more difficult. If, let me qualify that. I do think that if someone is talented and got determination and focus, they will make a career in any sport. It may not be to the levels that they can get to if it's a different era. Like for me, I think I would have made a career in the sport. I'm not sure if I'd have made the same levels as I did, but I would have made a career in the sport because I loved it, I had passion and I focused hard on it. It is very difficult now because and principally the number that you need to start is so much higher. You know, the first season I did uh, with David Leslie, David, uh, well, sorry, David Leslie basically run my Formula Ford car. So we went to, uh, we got this RF86, which was a second hand one that had, I think it had more hits than the Beatles, that car. And uh, we, we ran it out of his garage in Carlisle. It was out of a trailer. My dad bought a motorhome and uh, we just went to the circuit like that. And so it was me and David. I made the bacon rolls and the cup of tea in the back of the motorhome and the, he was driving down to wherever it happened to be. And you could do it like that. And I think we spent like seven or eight grand or something at the end of the year once we sold the trailer and the motorhome. And Hugh McCaig at Acure Cos supported me. I had a little bit of support from Duckham's as well. And uh, that was just enough money to sort of pa pass it through. Seven or eight grand, you can buy tires now. And everything is at a professional level. You have to go to a professional team. You can't do it out of a trailer any longer. And that's the biggest thing is that you could achieve it out with l very, very limited budget and uh, selling everything at the end of the year to try to sort of recoup everything. But now you just can't do that. And that's, I think, the hardest point. And I see it from you know, young Scottish drivers coming through and they, they ask for advice where to go and what to do. And you look at the number the actual monetary number you need to get into the game is just very, very high. Must have learned quite a lot from David Leslie, though. Yeah, I have learned a lot. Last thing that David Jr. taught me was how to drink a whiskey. At the SMRC, Father David, I, they, I'm here because of a few people. Clearly a family supporting me, but David came from Dumfries. And my dad used to help him. And so when he was doing Formula Ford in 77, then dad would go along and mechanic for him in bits and pieces. And if you saw others on the front of uh, the car was cross flags, which was my dad. And so it helped him there. And I followed David, because I was a wee boy, so I went to Alton Park or Croft or wherever it was. So a wee boy in the, in the motorhome. And that was so inspirational to me. And then when I started karting, it was Father David that took me to Rowra, uh, which is in the northeast of, uh, sorry, northwest of England and uh, got my first cart from the Edgars who owned Rowra Circuit. And funnily enough, Edgar Jr. Jr. is now racing uh, in carts as well. Was that when you got lapped by Jason Plato? No, I took him off. I had him off my first race. <laughs> I found the picture of my first race uh, last night, actually. 
I was going through some old pictures when I was in the freeze. And so David started me off in karting. He started me off in the inspiration. He started me off in karting and then they ran my former Ford. And so a huge, huge part of me and my career in the McNish household. But he did the same for David Coulthard as well. Started him in car racing and did the same for Dario. And so if you think, you know, a father-son combination out of a tiny wee place in the th southwest of Scotland. And this is a, I think it's a pretty cool statement. Indy 500 winners, Monaco Grand Prix winners, and Le Mans 24-hour winners. And you talk about Alonso trying to do his triple crown. You know, there's a, there's a name, David Leslie, it's achieved it through other ways coming from there. Has that had an effect on you to make you more, to reflect that yes. to the growing, the next generation as well? Yes, definitely. You know, we were very lucky, our generation, that we had someone that was there before us, sort of opening doors. And that was David at the, the ground level, both father and son, but it was also Jackie Stewart at the higher levels. Jackie knocking on doors saying, by the way, you should maybe just watch for this next week, Scott, he's, he's quick. And that gave us opportunities that we would never have had otherwise. And uh, you can never put a value on that. And I think our generation are very aware of it and trying to, to do that for the next group that's coming through. And Paul D'Aresto was a good example, you know, with David, uh, sorry, with Dario, um, because of obviously their cousins. And so from that perspective, you know, you just see that it can actually have a positive effect and move it forward. So who's the next big name coming out of Scotland, do well, you think? Well, McNish. <laughs> I'm thinking of making a comeback. <laughs> Walter Highs this weekend. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, no, I think my driving days have gone. I don't think my helmet and overalls would fit. I think, it, you know, you, it's a difficult time, actually, very frankly, because we had a, a really good group of young drivers coming through, and that monetary side of things uh, sort of hit them in the head. Lewis Williamson was one that I thought was so talented. You know, and he's from Golsby, and I raced at Golsby once. It is in the north of Scotland. From him to get to me was six hours driving before he ever went anywhere from there. And so the commitment he had to do it, but you know, unfortunately for Lewis, he wasn't able to make the jump into the next big level to go forward. And that's the point that now I think we've got to try to look at to make sure that uh, you know, the, the ones that are showing promise do get the doors open for them. But it comes down to this at the end of the day. Yep. I think we're running out of time, so we've got two questions coming from readers. Oh, yeah. Um, one of them, well, they're both from Anthony Jenkins, actually. Um, speaking of budget, in a way, um, your views on the dub Formula W or W series? I had a very good discussion with my wife on this because okay. we've got uh, a young daughter, 10 years old. And Charlotte's very, very determined, and my wife's very determined that she, sh she can do everything she wants, whatever she wants. She can compete with anybody in any stage. And Charlotte's got this belief as well. I see it that if it opens up opportunities for people, female drivers, in, because it's clearly for that, female drivers that couldn't have had the opportunity before, perfect. They don't have to do it. It's not mandatory. If you're female, it doesn't mean to say you have to do this. You can opt to go in another direction. But if you don't have the opportunities to go in the other direction, it gives you a chance. And so for me, that's a positive outlook. I know it's very divisive and you see different views. And I read uh, the different articles and I could agree and understand both points of view. But I come back to the point that it's not mandatory. You can go in a different direction. But if you don't have the possibility, then it's better than sitting at home. 
I guess from what you say, the de determination of Charlotte McNish means that she'll probably go for GP, well, F3 or something. Charlotte? Yeah. No, she's into gymnastics. Ah, OK. <laughs> she's, uh, yeah, that's her, that's her thing. That's her thing. But she is, yeah, she's, unfortunately, she's a chip off the McNish block in that respect. And there's definitely a lot of my genes in there. <laughs> Is any good gen you're, you're a good gymnast, are you saying there? Gymnast? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. You rolled an F3 car once. Yes, I know, but I didn't get to climb out of it very well. <laughs> Brands Hatch Gardner, Mr. Frankiti, called me for that one. Uh, the final question, uh, who's the best driver you ever raced against? And would that necessarily be during your F1 tenure? No, 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 no. no. I think at the time, the, probably the most talented was uh, Andrea Gilardi who raced in karts, you'll remember him oh, from 3000. Yeah. And Andrea won two karting world titles back to back on the bounce. And the second one was when I raced against him and he won Michael Schumacher was second and I was third, Lenoir Aiello was fourth, funnily enough. So it was quite a good wee lineup there. And Andrea had massive talent. And unfortunately his father, because he won the world championship, bought him a scooter and uh, somebody knocked him off and he broke his pelvis. And he never really came back from that. And uh, then different other things happened. But probably in pure talent, he was, he was, he was cool. Looked good. Greased back hair, 1985, 86. Trousers rolled up, you know, tanned, everything else. Good looking. And he was super, super quick. I guess on the, on the flip side, best you ever drove with, if you can answer that, or allowed to answer that question. Uh, if I was to say, I've got so much affection for two. Tom Christensen and Dindo Capello, because I spent so much time with them, but they had different qualities. Tom was very good driving whatever it was at any time. And he would be very consistent and he would, whether it's wet, dry, the car was imbalanced, had half a flick hanging off it, whatever, he would get something out of it. Dindo, because he just did things with a car that you just thought were impossible. He was so talented and natural. We went to Portland's the one that I always think of. We went to Portland and the tyre did half a lap, never mind a lap. Went out to qualify and Dindo was like four tenths off the pace after the first lap. And I thought, oh Christ. All right, well, that's it. And he kept going round and round and round and he's just getting slower and slower and tyres going off. Now, okay, that's going to be a bit of a struggle from the third row. And then, like the sixth lap, he put it in pole by two tenths. He said, Where did that come from? He went, I don't know. <laughs> Do you want to go for a coffee? And it was just. Like, it was just so beautifully natural. And I don't know any other driver that I ever raced with that could do that. And then, like I say, on the other side, and the three of us were very good together because Tom and I were very strong, opinionated characters. And Dindo was a fantastic antidote in the middle of it as well. And so he basically bonded us as a group. But uh, yeah, those were the two. I think he's the most underrated as well, Dindo. Of, of that. He was too he was too quiet in terms of he didn't do any self promotion. Yeah. He wasn't into self promotion. He was into dindo and dindoisms. Yeah. He's my wife's second husband. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Tom. His first Le Mans. The story of that just turning up six yeah. weeks preparation. Could you imagine that in '98? Um, of having. Yeah. Well. Just turned up. To be honest with you, Laurent Aello did that. Yeah. Because. Uh, we were not sure because I was at Porsche at the time and there was the GT1 car and there was also the open top car which actually was the car that won the previous year and uh, they weren't sure the driver lineups except they knew I was going to be with Stefan Ortelli who I'd raced with before 
And uh, so it's Steph and I and A another. And it was only about a week before the pretest, which was one month before the race then, where I got a call from Herbert Amfra, the boss, and he said, do you know this guy called Leroy Aylo? Yes. I raced against him in carts and he was my teammate at Dams in 1991. I know him very well. What do you think? I went, rock and roll, get him in. Because I knew that, first of all, he was the same height as Steph and I, so he's of average height. And the other thing, that he was very adaptable. One thing about Laurent, he was adaptable. And uh, so knowing the character, knowing the personality, everything else, and also that he was from Paris, which was you know just an hour along the road, then it fitted. And so Laurent turned up, not having done the pretest because he then couldn't do it, turned up at the race and delivered. And so, yeah. And then he became one of, I think, the best ever touring car driver in history, if you ask me. And then he just walked away from the sport or in a restaurant? No, no, he didn't go. He, did. he went away to, uh, he basically became a DJ. DJ, okay, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw, he, he popped by actually with Steph in the summer. Um, after Steph had that horrible accident in Spa when the steering field yeah. at Eau Rouge. And uh, so they came by and we had a, a nice night. I hadn't seen Laurent for 10 years. And it was just like rewinding to 1998. I suppose that happens when you get to our age that you reminisce on things, but it's very, very nice. But yeah. 20 years ago this year? 20 years ago this year, yeah. What do you remember of it? I don't remember the party, I can tell you that. I remember waking up in a stairwell, <laughs> not in my bed. <laughs> It was, what I remember about it was, there was an immense amount of pressure because we were quick, but we weren't actually getting the results. The board arrived on a jet on a Saturday morning and they only expected a victory. Nothing else would suffice. And we'd got into a position, there's two actual main memories of the race. I remember seeing the Mercedes at the side of the road, thinking, okay, that's one problem out of the way. And I remember, in the early hours of the morning, fighting with our teammates through the night, and uh, Jörg Muller coming out of the gravel trap at the first chicane, and I overtook him to put him a lap down. I thought, right now, now I've got you. And I did about two laps, and then the water temperature started going up, and 90 was the limit, it was up at 95, and I've got on the radio and saying, uh, water temperature. And he said, right, box, box, box. I said, no, no, I think it's only a sensor. You know, <laughs> praying, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So I came into the pits and the sister car was up on the jacks and the, the floor off and they were cleaning the gravel out. Our car was up on the jacks and I saw the Toyota going past. And I thought, that's Le Mans gone. It's a chance of Le Mans. And you know, it wasn't as if my career had been swimming up till then. It had been fantastic at the beginning, dropped off, and this was like a regeneration of it. And you could just see it sort of slipping away from you. And then got it repaired back out, and it was a water pipe that was cracked. Uh, got it repaired back out, and then the, f the fight to the end with the Toyota, and seeing the Toyota, you know, stopped entry to the Porsche curves was quite a nice sight, to be honest with you. And uh, that was that was it. But yeah, it was it. it we took the selfie in the podium. Yeah. We took a first selfie with a Kodak, you know, these little Instamatics. <laughs> And oh, then with, the with the film in it? Yeah, with the yeah, film in yeah, it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. sent it off to Boots and it comes back about two and a half months <laughs> later. And they're, they're brilliant pictures, just like three kids on top of a podium, not having a clue what they'd done. We didn't know what we had won. We just drove. And then suddenly, you know, you, you realise afterwards how it can affect your career. And Le Mans still does that. It still can affect your career in a, such a positive, positive way. 
And that's what I remember about 98. Yeah, yeah you, you, you talk about your, your career kind of seesawing, but I mean, I, re I remember because I wrote some of the stories, in 1990 you were being tipped with all, you were being linked to all, you had a couple yeah. of wins in F3000, you were being linked to all sorts of Formula One teams. Then it took until 2002 to get there. Yeah, I know. That's I know. quite yeah, something. Well, you don't want to rush into things. <laughs> no, no, no. You need to sort of just I know you tested for everyone first, but you know. Yeah, you uh, just you test the waters. Yeah. yeah, to be honest, 2002 was a bit late. You know, I was 32. If the momentum had taken me then, but you know, you come back, I was 20, 21. And that was very, very early. It was like Max Verstappen type of early at that time. You know, there wasn't many drivers jumping in at that age. It was all 24, 25, 26. And uh, to be honest, I was probably a little bit too young then, but I was definitely probably a little bit too long in the tooth at, at 32. And so I would have said that maybe a one or two years, but you know, there's, I'm not into looking backwards. I look forwards most of the time. And it, it, it certainly would have been more ideal if it had happened straight away. Because I think you do need that momentum just to keep on rolling and then you sort of stabilise yourself, but uh, unfortunately it didn't happen, but it did. It opened up other things for me. You didn't tell them how pleased you were to see a Toyota parked up on the side of the road at Le Mans. Well, I drove for them the next year. I actually drove in that car the next year uh, because Porsche decided at the Christmas party to tell everybody that we're canning the project. It wasn't much of a celebration. <laughs> actually, uh, I remember meeting Mr. Gary Watkins round the back of the Warsteiner bar and uh, I was on full Drown the, <laughs> drown the Sorrows <laughs> mode. Uh, and yeah, but I then drove for Toyota. Um, and I think part of their reasoning was it was they saw what we could do, so it was better to try and do it together. Yeah. So you're here for the night at the RAC? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, Seagrave, I've been very honoured to be the recipient of the Seagrave Award. And, uh, You've got two, and Hamilton's only got one. So yes. I know, well, to be honest, we're extremely proud of having won one. Jackie Stewart said to me and uh, when I was given the, the first one, which was in 2008, and he said, this is probably the most prestigious award you will ever receive, but people outside will never have heard of. Yeah. And uh, when I looked in the room and saw the people that were actually in the room, and now it's past winners that come. That's the thing that's so cool about it. It's only the past winners that are invited. And you just, it's... the 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 things that the people in that room have done make you feel so, so small. But your name is on the trophy alongside them, and I think that is just so beautiful. And so, yeah, I'm very honoured about that, and always like to come back and support it as well. And your name's on the Tourist Trophy in here somewhere as well. Well, 2013 yeah. won the Tourist Trophy, and that was the start of my, one of my most successful ever years in terms of winning big races. And it was my last year. I didn't know it was going to be then, but it's also the only race that my whole family ever came to. And so my wife, my two children, and also uh, mum and dad, and that was the only race they ever came to as, as one sort of unit. In fact, it's the only race my kids ever came to. So they think you turn up and everything's a tourist <laughs> trophy weekend. But uh, yeah, that was a huge, huge honor as well. Huge trophy as well. Yeah, it was bigger than me. Thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not one you sort of lift up with one arm. <laughs> no, but that was, uh, that was a massive honor. And I think it's, it's now, good that it's back, brought back into existence yeah. and for a prestigious race and something that's quite fitting of it. Because that was the first big race that it was brought back for, ba you. Brought back for yeah. yeah, so. That's correct. World Championship race, tourist trophy, oldest trophy in the world and a big part of this club but also a big part of what we've got in the UK. And I think we've got to remember that sometimes because I think we, we do take it for granted but also we tend to forget what 
we have done in the UK for the sport and the industry and where we are and the things we've achieved. Because there's so many other countries around and about the world that are jealous of us. And we should remember that we're actually quite good at it. Yeah, well, Lewis Hamilton obviously proving that at the very top. Good to see that so. uh, he's certainly proven it and I'm sure he's going to do a few more as well. Yeah, so thanks a lot for joining us. Enjoy thank the you. evening. Uh, thank you both. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. And thank you. Uh, I think we've got one more to go this year, so we'll be back before the end of the year. So we'll see you then. Thanks a lot.